This is the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram. And there you can suggest both guests and questions for future episodes. But I'm so excited for the show today because it's rare to have a product today that you use every single day without fail. Well, this one I certainly do. And I would never have thought I would say this, but they make expenses fun. Plus, their leader is one of the most thoughtful and empathetic leaders who really understands their team that I've met while doing the show. Yes, I'm thrilled to welcome Yepe Rindam, founder and CEO at Please on the show today. For those that don't know, Plio is the simple spending solution for your company, automating expense reports and simplifying company expenses. To date, Yepe has raised over $78 million from some leading VCs for Plio. Those VCs include the likes of Creandum and Vice Fonden, and then also their most recent round led by Stripes Group in New York. As for Yepe, prior to founding Plio, he was the CEO at Nodes, a design and development warehouse that worked with brands including L'Oreal, BMW and Lego, just to name a few. And before that, Yepe Yepe was the CFO at TradeShift, where he firsthand saw their scaling to 190 countries, with offices in six different locations. But before we dive into the show today, you have to check out Chorus.ai, the number one conversational intelligence platform, allowing you to unlock hidden insights from customer conversations that close deals and really work. So whether you want to increase quota attainment, coach and ramp new reps way more effectively, or clone winning talk tracks, head over to Chorus.ai to join the likes of GitLab, Amplitude, AdRoll, and many more amazing companies already using and loving Chorus. That's Chorus.ai. And if Chorus powers your sales team to be more effective, we need to discuss Pantheon, the web ops platform built for agility. Pantheon powers more than 300,000 websites, including some of the most well-known brands like Tableau and the United Nations. Pantheon's web ops platform gives superpowers to your web teams, making it simple to manage your websites, quickly iterate, and optimize to deliver engaging digital experiences and provide the fastest hosting and highest level of security in uptime. And finally, as you know, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to David J, founder at Agree.com. Agree.com provides attorney-approved contracts and payments for businesses and creatives. Smart creatives and businesses use Agree.com to make their business serve their life, not the other way around. Hi, Harry. So being decisive is more important than being right. And nowadays, you don't have to be right in order to win. Let the market tell you whether you are right or not. And then, you know, backtrack when needed, but make adjustments, uh, use feedback and um, shape things for the market. I couldn't agree with you more there, David. And being decisive is really important for successful growth. And for more on successful growth, WePay offers payments you can bank on. Now a JP Morgan Chase company, it offers you payments with bank scale and SMB distribution channels, in addition to modern technology. Visit WePay.com forward slash Harry to find out more. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. However, you've heard quite enough of this, Harry. And so now I'm delighted to hand over to the one and only Yepe Rindam, founder and CEO at Plio. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Yeah, okay, my word. I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity. What you don't know is that I'm a massive user of Clio, both at the fund and at the show. So super excited for this one. And thank you so much for joining me today, Yepe. Thanks, Harry. That's super exciting that you're using Clio. I love that. Absolutely. I told you before, uh, you make expenses fun, which uh, I never thought would be possible. But I do want to start today with a little bit about you. So talk to me. How did you make your way from CFO to being the co-founder and CEO of one of Europe's fastest growing startups in Clio? And what was that aha moment? 
That's a good question. I actually never really considered myself as a CFO as such. I come from management consulting and I worked with large companies for quite a few years. And then stepping into technology, I joined a company called TradeShift and sort of the role open was a CFO. But I was kind of like playing everywhere and I was also doing financial products. So I'm not really sort of the classic CFO type. But, you know, I had the responsibility of everything that related to, you could say, the spending in the company and the receipts and the accounting as well. And that was kind of like how I came across the pain points and essentially what we ended up trying to solve with Clear a few years later. I thought you sounded far too interesting to be a traditional CFO, so I'm not surprised at all to hear that. But I do I do want to ask, TradeShift obviously has had an incredible journey and you experienced it firsthand. Tell me, what were your biggest takeaways from your time with TradeShift and how do you think it maybe impacted how you think about building Clio today? Yeah, I mean, I think first of all, TradeShift was you know my first journey in, in technology and I came in on the team quite early and it was just a great experience inspiration for me. You know, we moved to San Francisco eventually. And I think it was a lot of the reason why, you know, I was inspired to go and build my own business. But also, I think, you know, that was my firsthand experience with this whole area around spending money in a company context. And TradeShift was a modern company in many ways. And we really trusted everyone and we wanted everyone to be empowered and efficient. And we also trusted them to use the company money in a sensible way because they needed to sign up to services, they needed to travel and advertise and stuff like that. But we never really had a good way to deal with that. So it was always this, you know, common hack that carts were shared in the office and people were paying out of pocket. And it just came with so much on one side, demotivation of the employees not being fully autonomous here, but also a lot of administration that we ended up picking up in finance. So you could say it was my first hand experience with all of these pain points. And a few years later, you know, we came up with the idea of, of solving this in a completely new way. I do want to kind of start then with the entry point that you chose in terms of solving it? Because you started with the SMB segment and that's exactly where you focus today. It's mm. the common question that I get with founders and they ask, Harry, should I start at SMB and work up to enterprise or should I start at enterprise and work down to SMB? How did you think about this and why did you start with SMB? Yeah, I think you can be successful in both ways and you can say trade shift started with, with enterprise. But I also think I had a little bit of scar tissue from that because selling into enterprise as an early stage company, it is just tough because it's hard to get your product market fit. You're facing extremely long sales cycles, which doesn't really align with the quick results you want to have as a business. And, you know, with Player, we had the opportunity to build something fairly simple in the beginning that would have a really good fit with smaller businesses. And I think the benefit of that was we could get to 50, 100, 200 customers extremely fast. We could get the feedback running and we could get our first ambassadors and evangelists out there and, and, and the reference customers with investors and so forth. And I also think it's good for culture somehow that you, you get these small wins every single in the beginning week and then it became every day and then it almost became every hour so it aligns really well with the culture you want to build in, a, in an early stage startup so that's kind of like why we started with SMEs but it also has flip sides so you know you, you can go both ways I would say no I totally get you I guess my question there is one how do you think about SMBs because you also serve obviously a ton of startups how do you think about them as they grow and scale into actually very large companies and become enterprise companies how do you think about that and maybe different product requirements that, that are needed with scale and with their growth? Yeah, indeed. I mean, we currently focus on businesses, I would say, generally from very small teams, starting with three or five people, and then all the way up to a thousand people. And I would say we're more successful in serving larger companies when they've either scaled with us or scaled really fast. So they have fairly simple processes, but they might be many people. The challenge that we have is if we face an opportunity that has been 
a company 20, 50 years or whatever, and they have very complex processes. So that might mean that they have customized ERP requirements or they have a very complex geography, footprints and stuff like that. And that is difficult for us to service. So, you know, we target a very big market and we target any industry and in theory we can target any country. So we don't really need to go too fast into the enterprise offering. I think right now it's actually okay for us just to focus on the kind of companies we focus on now. No, I, I totally agree. And I mean, my word, the market is absolutely huge. I think people always underestimate just how big the market is. I do want to ask a couple of questions though that to me, potential investors always poses concerns when they assess the SMB market. And there's three main ones. And the first is on pricing. How do you respond to investors when they say seven pounds per month? Oh, yappe. It's just so hard to scale to 100 million in revenue. How do you think about that and the pricing element with SMB? Yeah, I think pricing has been like an iterative process for us. I think in the early days, we even tested out with two or three pounds a month just to see the reaction. And we ended up sort of agreeing on seven pounds. And I think the main focus for us in the beginning has just been, you know, let's get some good experiences out there. Let's get some good feedback. Let's not care too much about fine tuning the pricing in the early days. And then also, it's not only the seven pounds. We also tap into the more like payment ecosystem and we have ways of earning money there. So we have a dual business model. On one side, the SaaS and on the other side, the financial income. So even seven pounds is actually fairly sensible for us and we can get our acquisition economics and everything to work around that. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. That totally makes sense. And especially on the ancillary revenue streams that you said there. The other element though that, that all VCs say is the mortality rate of SMBs. When you go to bat for the SMB approach, how do you respond to the mortality rate being higher for SMB than it obviously is for enterprise? Yeah, I think we're a little bit fortunate because we don't really focus too much on the micro businesses. So you could say the, the one to three employees is not really where we play. And I think that's where the mortality is really strong. But we do, of course, have businesses that go out of business. And I would say churn in general is not our biggest problem. We have churn of less than 0.5% a month, which I think is fairly strong in our, our stage. So I think as long as your growth and your addressable market is there, churn in the zero to one, two percent is, is probably okay and uh, and be within that range. This is so unfair of me to go off schedule so soon, but I, I do have to ask, you said the churn's not your biggest problem there. What would you say your biggest problem is today? I think, you know, we, <clears throat> we've reached our product market fit. You know, the business model works, the acquisition economics work as well. So for us, it's really about scaling and it's also why we raised a fairly, at least for European standards, a big Series B. And so we're all about scaling now. We're about multiplicating our team, opening up new markets, figuring out how we can ramp everything as fast as possible without losing the culture and what excites all of us. And that's really what we invest in right now. And the other element that you said there was the, the 0.5% churn, which absolutely incredibly low given the segment. I do want to ask you, despite that, do you do post-mortems on lost clients that you think one needs extra time on? How do you think about analysis of lost accounts? We do, but I must admit it's fairly simple. I mean, we have a really high deal flow given the size of businesses we target. We close tens of businesses on a daily basis. So, you know, just losing one is not really a big deal. But what we do make sure to do is we collect the competitor insights and the key objections that we meet out there and we pass that on to product as well, but we also pass it on to sales excellence so that we can learn from that and figure out how we work around that going forward. Can I ask, how do you, sorry, and again, I'm just too interested and it's not on the schedule. How do you structure the sales team given the segment being targeted? Right. So we have a team in each market. We have a part of the team that works purely on outbound, generating their own leads. So those are typically the younger account executives. As they get and grow their tenure, they will start being fed with leads from marketing, which is actually the bulk of our business. We get uh, more than half of our business from marketing. So as they become a little bit more tenured, they get fed with that and then they can 
grow their careers into being team leads, helping out in hiring as well, eventually owning a country and then becoming maybe one day a regional director. So I would say we have a fairly classical sales model, but we also are now pushing along with a more self-onboarded approach where leads actually don't really have to touch sales. If you're totally capable of getting started, we should be able to enable that. And that's kind of like one of our focuses going forward. Got you. Okay. No, that makes total sense. There is one final element though that is probably another terrible VC question before we move into the product itself. But it is that there are a number of players in the space. Clear is obviously the best product by miles ahead of everyone else. And the question though that many VCs I think will ask is, is this a winner-take-all market? And how do you think about competition? Is there a right way to assess it? I think competition can, to some extent, be quite healthy. And I think founders should follow competition, of course, very closely, but I don't think you should stress too much about it. I think in this case, we're addressing a really, really large addressable market because this is relevant across industries and across countries and sizes of businesses. And you could say the licensing required in being involved in payments and so forth also makes it a little bit difficult just to win globally overnight. It's something that happens a little bit more organically. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, when you see this big market opportunities and a couple of players entering it, I think you see that the requirements for the products increase. And over time, these competitors will sort of drift apart slightly in terms of the kind of product experience that they provide, making it more natural and more natural division of the market. And I think you've seen that a ton of times in accounting software, where you have, you know, at least five, 10 players that have really solid businesses globally. You know, you saw it on SME POS systems where, you know, it became divided between Square Eye, Settled Sum Up and other players. So I think, you know, there are room for more. And I think, you know, we can build, uh, there can be a handful of companies that can build great companies here with each of the different approaches. No, absolutely. I agree with the different approaches element, but I do, I do want to get stuck into the product. I said earlier that you make expenses funds do. And so if we dig into the product itself and with the consumerization of SaaS, obviously the core user is always at the center of your mind. And I'm sure you have a super high NPS. How is how you measure customer satisfaction with the product and NPS? How has that changed over time? And how do you think about it today? Yeah, I mean, it matters a lot to us. I mean, we see ourselves as very, not only like customer centric, but we're very end user centric. And I love to get your feedback that this has completely changed your life as a user. And actually, we care more about that than what it has done to your finance person. Because at the end of the day, you are the kind of ambassador that we like to have out in the market talking about our product and, and sharing your experiences. So we've taken a stance that we really want to prioritize the end user in everything we do. And if sometimes the decision maker being finance wants to push development on us that doesn't resonate with what the end user wants, we really challenge that. So we really want to be beloved by the end user. We have the promoter scores of around 70. So there's surely a lot of Harry's out there loving our product and spreading good news around it. For sure. Absolutely. Especially with that MPS. Can I ask it, is there a right way to challenge it? Because often when the buyer, so to speak, suggests something, often SaaS companies do amend what they do to fit them. If, as you said, if you push back, given the end user won't benefit from that change, how does one push back politely and constructively? I think we're trying to ask them why they need that specific feature or element and understand exactly what is the deeper cause behind this. And then we figure out, would there be different ways of arriving at such experience or you know what would it at least impact in terms of the end user, which is a higher priority for us. And then sometimes we do something that is slightly different, that it's still acceptable for the end user, or sometimes we just reject doing it. At the end of the day, we want this product to work really well with employees and we want them to love it. For sure. And you mentioned that the feedback and them having a voice, so to speak, in terms of the product development. How do you think about customer success and that customer interaction, given the sheer volume of clients that you serve? It's very important for us. We invested into customer success extremely early and we did a lot of things in the early days that just didn't make sense. I mean, if we messed 
stop. There was like a couple of carts that didn't work. You know, we would send out a person on her bike and replace those carts and buy a box of chocolate on the way, just because we really didn't accept poor experiences by the customers. And, you know, often we were actually able to turn around a customer that was about to leave us or anything like that. And that is kind of like still, I would say, the DNA we have in the team that we don't want to sacrifice on the customer experience. So now we have a customer success team focusing on both the more like reactive support, but they also focus on the activation of the account and the ongoing nurturing. And you can say our challenge now with the team being 20 people is how do you ensure the same degree of service and experience at scale without adding, you know, one-to-one headcount? So that's this is about being more data-driven, having better processes, better tooling and so forth, which is, you could say, the topic in that team currently. I mean, I'm so pleased that you said about better tooling and better processes because I want to talk about the team itself and how it's structured because it's super interesting. You're partly remote as a team. I had a guest on the show the other day that says you can either be all remote or office-based as kind of traditional companies were in days of old. Part remote seems interesting. Why do you think they were maybe wrong and, and how do you think it works so well? Yeah, so we we are 106 people and I would say we roughly have 25 people that are working remotely. It's mostly engineering, I would say, and it's worked really well for us. I mean, we haven't really had, I would say, hardly any churn in our remote workers. So we've somehow found a formula that, that has worked. Even our engineering leadership team is remote. I think there are like the more low practical things like, you know, you need to have your mics in every room, your 360-degree cameras, you need to have your meeting hygiene in place so that it works with everyone's time zone and stuff like that. And then I think it's a little bit about the culture and the company as well. We base a lot of stuff on both trust, but also like transparency and we communicate everything and we encourage people to participate across teams and so forth. And I think that becomes even more important if you're fully or partly remote. And then I would say the last piece, you can sort of never replace the human touch and the human interaction in person. I think it's very difficult not to have that at all. At least, you know, if you hit chubby waters, you know, I don't think the loyalty with your remote workers will be as strong if there's no sort of human relationship in place. And the way we do that is we make sure to bring people together four times a year. And uh, they also spend their first month in the office here in, in Copenhagen. And when we are together, we make sure that we really push a lot of social activities and we make sure that remote workers and everyone else is sort of exposed to each other's cross teams, et cetera. And I think that is just super, super important if you want the same sort of engagement everywhere in the company. Can I ask, I'm a, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to kind of optimization of processes. What tool stack do you think is critical to really enable the team who works remotely to coordinate seamlessly with the team in the office? Or what does that look like today for you guys? I would say for, for meetings and stuff like that, you know, we, we're in love with the OWL, which has, uh, you know, sound sensors and, and 360 cameras and microphone because it works just really well and it's cheap. So uh, and we use that in the meeting rooms and Zoom everywhere so you can connect to any meeting room. For communication, we still use Slack. You know, it has pros and cons, but I think it, it kind of works for us if you have the, the right hygiene around it. And then be mindful that the remote workers here are mostly engineers. And I think working remotely works quite well in engineering because there's even benefits of different time zones with code reviews and so forth. So you can almost sequence your day. And, you know, with code reviews and, and GitHub and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's almost designed around remote working principles. I would personally be a little bit more reluctant when it comes to stuff like sales, at least, you know, in a fast moving sales environment. I think we have a lot of benefits from having a good sales culture in the same room because it's just we get a lot out of you know a little bit of music and you know having power hours two times a day where everyone stands up and they do their prospecting and call out and stuff like that and I think that kind of culture is a little bit more difficult if it was remote so that's why we focus a lot of engineering here. 
Sorry, I have to dig in on that. What is a power hour? Uh, a power hour is just, you know, where everyone just goes all in and they go out of their comfort zone. And, you know, for some people, especially the younger ones that have not done a lot of outbounding before, it can be a little bit controversial to be on the phone and be rejected over and over again, which happens. So we make sure that people do that at the same time, twice a day for one hour, they stand up and they do their phone work and there's a lot of energy in the room and everyone, no one is left behind. Everyone is just banging on. I absolutely love that. I haven't heard that before. I do want to ask it because for you as the leader, the leadership style does have to change when part of the team is remote. So how does your leadership style and kind of temperament change as a result of this change in structure to part remote? Yeah, I think, you know, everything has to change, you know, the way you run your company, the way you communicate and the way you nurture your culture, everything has to, to change every six months. And that's kind of like, that's the circumstance. It's, it's almost like your product, you know, your product needs to be updated every time and now and then. And the same, the way you deal with your organization. So that's how we think about it. And also with my leadership as well, I still try to hang on to meeting everyone in person the first week they're here. And it's becoming harder and harder. We had 20 people starting two weeks ago. But, you know, I, I still try to figure out how the human part of my leadership, how can I scale that? Last year, you know, I recorded individual videos for everyone for New Year's Eve just to compliment them on their achievements of the year. And that kind of worked with 80 people. It took a bit of time, but now with 250 people, probably end of the year, you know, it's going to be much harder for me. So I need to figure out how can I still come across as human and being in touch with things, but, you know, now with, with a bigger scaling challenge. You recorded individual videos at the end of the year to congratulate them on the year that they've achieved. Yeah, I did that. Wow. Listen, I always think that there's not enough humanity in business today and there's not enough personalization and like true human relationships. So I've never heard of that being done before. And that's incredible. Like absolutely love to hear that. No, it was, it was actually really fun. It was a good, it was a good thing for me to well, as well, just to spend a day or two just thinking, you know, how's it going with this person and that person and, and just figure out how to put that into words in one to two minutes, which was the video, right? So it was actually a lot of fun. No, totally. Can I ask it? Cause that's actually a very emotionally aware experience leader style of culture building how have you seen yourself change and evolve as a ceo I think, you know, coming from the CFO mindset, you know, I was probably not the most typical CFO, but you know, like you're still like very much focus on the, the cost and the processes and stuff like that. And then you move into becoming a founder. And I think, you know, you fairly quickly realize this is all about people and it's about finding the best people. It's about keeping them motivated, retaining them and figure out the operating model around that and around keeping that. And this is really, you know, this is really the business. Once you have found your formula, which I think we have it's about scaling and scaling is people and people only so i think that i take that as my responsibility that whatever i can do now is to figure out how do we keep people culture how do we scale it how do we keep finding best people and how do we promote and develop the best leaders and that is really just my job now and and that's why you know i put a lot of dignity into this absolutely did you find it difficult to transition from player to coach and move into that very much management role where you sit on top of all the functions yeah but also i think you know it's not just about me right i i'm surrounded about some great people that have led great companies and i just need to figure out how to find them and turn them in, in love with our vision and then you know i can benefit from all of their experience as well so i learn a lot from them as well i would say that's amazing to hear and i, I do want to touch on the element of finding them before we move into the quick fire round because i want to talk about building this incredible company outside of the valley based in denmark today well away from even the european hubs of london and paris so diving straight in what advice would you give to founders building a business outside of 
Silicon Valley, London, Paris, what are the traditional tech hubs? What advice would you give? Yeah, so I mean, we never considered ourselves as being a Danish company, and I wouldn't recommend anyone to do that. We just considered ourselves as being an international company. My co-founder is Italian, and we always just hired the best person for the job, and we didn't really care too much about where they were located. Some we brought here, some we accepted that they worked remotely. And when we returned 15 people, I looked around, and I was still the only Dane in the company. So we don't see ourselves as a Danish company, but eventually you get into a scale where you need a lot of people. And that's where I would say being in Denmark is both an advantage and a disadvantage. It's an advantage because you don't compete a lot with very progressed startups here. You know, there are not as many as there would be in London or Silicon Valley. So, you know, in terms of the talent available, it's easier for us to get it. Now, where it becomes a little more challenging is when you look into your experienced leadership team, where you want to find that chief sales officer, chief revenue officer, CMO, whatever that has done this before in a hyper growth company, there are not that many available. And I think that's where you need to figure out, can you bring people here or figure out another place to recruit from? And we have a decent sized office in London where our chief sales officer sits in London and, you know, our product officer, he comes from a Stockholm based business and he's here in Copenhagen five days a week. So, you know, there are different models around that, but it's definitely something to think about. Yeah, no, totally. I think the scaling of talent and kind of the depth of talent is always a challenge, so to speak. The other element that can be a challenge is funding. And I do want to touch on the funding and, and discuss really the contrast between the US and the EU. So how did raising funding differ when raising from Europe versus the US and those investor conversations? Yeah, I think it's become a lot easier to fundraise from Europe and also like from Denmark in Europe. I think 10 years ago when we were raising money for trade shift, I think it was harder. I mean, they would expect us to be incorporated in either the UK or in Delaware. And I think that is not the case anymore. They don't really care where you're incorporated anymore. Now, I do think there is a difference between Europe and the US. We raised the first three rounds from Europe and the last round from the US. And I think, you know, there is still an element of stuff being a little bit more crazy in the US and the valuations being a little bit more hyped in certain situations, at least. And I think the good thing about that is there's quite a bit of US investors that are starting to look towards Europe to find more reasonably priced businesses. And I don't know if it's because the market in the US for some parts is a bit easier to scale across states than it would be in in Europe, country by country, language by language. But I do still think there's a difference between round sizes and valuation Europe versus the US. But the gap is, is, uh, is being bridged. Can I ask, is there a contrast in engagement and mindset? And what I mean by that is I often think that when it comes to investor mindset, the US has this mindset of upside maximization. What could happen if this goes right? And in the UK and Europe, it's a little bit more, what's my downside protection? What do I have to claw back on this? And a little more downside protection mindset. Would you agree with that? And how did you see the engagement differ? So I think there are like more like two parts of that that answer. I think on, on a contractual level, we haven't seen many differences, I would say. I guess is also how much you push it, right? If you push it more, you know, you, you want more downside protection. We've offered the same terms across Europe and the US and that has worked. But in terms of like the expectations, I would say expectations are higher with the US investors. They are just slightly more ambitious. And I think for us, that has been healthy. You know, we were proud showing a business case how we would double or triple next year. But, you know, what happens if you want to 10x next year? So they, you know, they push us on our ambitions. And I think that is that is healthy, especially if you come with a conservative CFO mindset as your scorebook. Totally. No, I, I, I do 
get you and uh, I've seen that ambition firsthand. I do want to move into my favorite though, Yeppe, and do the 60 second Sasta. Are you ready to dive in? Go for it. So when's the right time to pour fuel on the fire? As you said, it was a big last round. How do you know when's the right time to pour fuel on the fire? You got to have your product market fit and you got to have your acquisition economics in control. Uh, maybe proved yourself in more than one country and then I think you're ready to go. What would you most like to change in the world of SaaS today? Oof, that's a tough one. I think, did you know that actually on a global basis, 80% of employees are feeling disengaged in their workplace? That's a pretty insane number. And I think what we're trying to achieve here in Player with being more democratized with these kind of things, more empowering, is kind of like a little attempt to sort of change that sort of towards a better workplace. Speaking of that empowerment, sorry, too interested by this one. Speaking of that empowerment, how do you kind of create ownership where they feel like they have that real accountability, but not too much ownership where they feel almost too much responsibility? Responsibility on their shoulders. It's something that we've had to, to work around. I would say for some teams in the company, we actually refer to them as founders. So the team leads, we, we call them founders, and we expect that they act as founders and they carry the vision as a founder would do. Now, I do think we've underestimated a little bit the lead time of being able to take that responsibility. And today, we try to be a little bit more supportive, sometimes actually put a little bit more direction to the team in the beginning. But then the aim is that after six, nine months, you know, you should be able to leave the nest and, and kind of like own it yourself. So that's an attempt to sort of live these values but still be supportive. I absolutely love that in terms of the ownership around the labeling, so to speak. Final one, but I'm excited for this. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time with Plio? You know, I think, you know, coming from a CFO role, you know, I was a little bit more conservative in the beginning. And I think over time, we've become more bold and sort of are aiming more for the stars. And I think it's actually not that scary. And there is a lot of benefits from that. You get to work with the best and the most ambitious people if you have high ambitions. And at the end of the day, you know, that's what's going to take you there. So I think, you know, don't be afraid of being bold. Yeah, I've absolutely loved this show. I can't get over the videos to every single employee. That's absolutely one of my favorite moments I've done in a long time. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for making expenses something that I actually finally do. And it's been so much fun having you on. Wonderful, Harry. I've loved it. Thank you. I have to say, I just love that episode. I love the way that Yepe really thinks about bringing true humanity to leadership. And if you'd like to see more from Yepe, you can find him on Twitter at Yepe Rindom. Likewise, as I said at the beginning, the Plio product really is a game changer. So that's a must try. And also, we'd love to see you behind the scenes here. You can do that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. But before we leave you today, you have to check out Chorus.ai, the number one conversational intelligence platform, allowing you to unlock hidden insights from customer conversations that close deals and really work. So whether you want to increase quota attainment, coach and ramp new reps way more effectively, or clone winning talk tracks, head over to chorus.ai to join the likes of GitLab, Amplitude, AdRoll, and many more amazing companies already using and loving Chorus. That's chorus.ai. And if Chorus powers your sales team to be more effective, we need to discuss Pantheon, the web ops platform built for agility. Pantheon powers more than 300,000 websites, including some of the most well-known brands like Tableau and the United Nations. Pantheon's web ops platform gives superpowers to your web teams, making it simple to manage your websites, quickly iterate and optimize to deliver engaging digital experiences and provide the fastest hosting and highest level of security and uptime. And finally, as you know, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to David J, founder at Agree.com. Agree.com provides attorney-approved contracts and payments for businesses and creatives. Smart creatives and businesses use Agree.com to make their business serve their life, not the other way around. Hi, Harry. So being decisive is more important than being right. And nowadays, you don't have to be right in order to win. 
let the market tell you whether you are right or not. And then, you know, backtrack when needed, but make adjustments, uh, use feedback and um, shape things for the market. I couldn't agree with you more that, David. And being decisive is really important for successful growth. And for more on successful growth, WePay offers payments you can bank on. Now a JP Morgan Chase company, it offers you payments with bank scale and SMB distribution channels, in addition to modern technology. Visit WePay.com forward slash Harry to find out more. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you another set of fantastic episodes next week.